Well, we've heard a lot of things to celebrate this morning, and uh, I thought one last thing that we ought to do is is uh, say thank you to Pastor Brad for all of his good work with Vacation Bible School this year, so let's give him a hand. This month we've had the opportunity to study Romans 12 together, and uh, in now my 16 years of vocational ministry, this was the first time I've ever preached in multiple weeks like I've been given the opportunity to do this month. Thank you for, for that opportunity. It's been an honor and privilege to study God's Word with you together during this time and the, the time just to work through it and think over it and study it on my own has also been a joy. And today we get to conclude that conversation, at least as it pertains to our time together in this room. Romans 12 is just the beginning of Paul describing the transformed life. And so my encouragement to you is to move on from here into subsequent chapters, and you'll begin to see additional features and characteristics of that kind of life. We've sought to place this text within the context of the biological family, although its applications are for everybody. We've taken the opportunity to think about the family, and if, if families were filled with people following Christ as Lord and Savior, what would that transformed family look like? And over the past few weeks, we've concluded that that kind of family um, lives sacrificially. They serve exceptionally, and a transformed family loves genuinely. Today, I believe, based upon our reading and study of the text, that we'll learn that a transformed family blesses liberally. You know, you may, you may be surprised to hear that uh, God actually gives us a few things of which it's okay to be liberal about. We tend to get really finicky with words today and, uh, and sometimes kind of miss that sometimes these words can be good things. And there are actually quite a few things in the Christian life that we ought to be liberal about. And one of those things is how we go about blessing other people. You can bless as much as you'd like, and more so. And so the encouragement today is think about how we can bless others liberally, abundantly. And as we look at the text this morning in Romans chapter 12, we'll start in verse 14. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You know, this chapter, and certainly the book of Romans, and of course the Bible in general, these are challenging things. But probably in Romans chapter 12, this <clears throat> increases in difficulty. We've been challenged so far to live out many of these transformed characteristics, specifically within the body of Christ, with one another, brothers and sisters. But now, Paul turns our sights outward. Now he tells us that Jesus has expectations and demands over our life as to how we behave ourselves with those outside of the family of God. Of course, Jesus speaks to this as well, and will do so today. And already we have one part of this answer, that a family blesses liberally by showing kindness 
to those who mistreat them. And we will be mistreated. Merely claiming the name of Christ and endeavoring to be his follower, being mistreated will be part of that path. And so Jesus informs our response to that oppression, that kind of persecution, and the instruction is we ought to show kindness to them. It's very countercultural, but Jesus himself speaks to this firsthand. In Romans, he does it through Paul, but in Matthew, we hear from him directly. Matthew chapter 5, I'd invite you to turn there with me. It's an opportunity to once again visit the great Sermon on the Mount. And in the midst of this sermon, we pick up in verse 38 where Jesus says, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in chapter 5, Jesus is only getting started. But as he often does, he raises the bar for his people. The expectations for a Christ follower are never said to be easy. But they are his expectations. And there are many times where when we are being mistreated, that's when our flesh will rage the most. Temptation to retaliate will be intense. But we're told to do the opposite of what the flesh would have us to do and to show kindness instead. Now there's a correction that I am going to encourage you to make in your outline. You know, no matter how many times I look this thing over, there always ends up being a mistake. And Jessica Eversall, who prints these out on, uh, for us every week, she came up to me uh, later this, this last week and said, now are you sure? Because what you don't know is behind the scenes, for the first few weeks, I think I've sent her the outline a minimum of three times. And so she knows what's going on here. And I said, yes, tri double, triple check, we're good. And we're not. So what you're going to need to do is I, I've given you references here under point one, John chapter two and John chapter 11. You just need to slide those down under point number two. And that's going to make 
more sense for you. But we're going to continue in our passage in Romans chapter 12. And in verses 15 and 16, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I believe a family blesses liberally by joining others in their highs and their lows. When he talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, I think it's important that we understand that there seems to be no shift in his thinking or his wording that would indicate that he's now necessarily bouncing back to our relationships exclusively with brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, he's not necessarily saying rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, as long as they're part of the family of God. That it seems like this is a direct extension of how we bless those who persecute and curse us. That one of the ways we go about doing that is by joining them in their highs and their lows. And in this, in this case, in, this, in verse 15, these are like emotional highs and lows. Christian, we can become so contrarian in our Christian walk that if the world is for it, we're automatically against it. And that's not what God's word actually tells us to do. Jesus calls us into a tension-filled path. And part of that path is to be vigilant in looking for opportunities when the world's rejoicing and we can join them. We actually should do that. I'll give you an easy example. Human trafficking is a very significant problem in our world and in our country, and particularly in the state of Ohio, and specifically the city of Columbus. It is a heinous thing, an evil in this world. And should there be a time where you see on the news or you in the goings-on in our community that a human trafficking ring was exposed and that those perpetrating that crime were brought to justice and the victims of that crime were rescued... And there is a celebration of that event. You ought to join in that rejoicing and celebration, no matter who's in the crowd. Because our God is a God of justice, and our God is a God who rescues victims. These are what, what I would call easy wins, and Christians tend to be the worst at claiming them. But these are easy opportunities to come side by side with unbelievers and rejoice in what they're rejoicing. Now listen, are there things that the world celebrates that we cannot? Yes, and we've discussed that already. Genuine Christian love is to loathe evil and love good. And so there are certainly times where we cannot celebrate because to do so would be to violate our Christian faith. But there are many times where that is not the decision we have to make. And we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. The same with weeping with those who weep. You might have a neighbor or a coworker who's an unbeliever, and they're going through a difficult time. For instance, if they've just lost a loved one and they're in a time of mourning, join them in that. Weep with those who weep. That is a way to bless them. It may even be a coworker or a neighbor who has mistreated you on occasion, but now they are hurting. The most Christ-like thing you could do is to join them in that hurt. To weep with those who weep. 
This is one another language. And so there very much is also an application to the body of Christ and to what we do with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. These things ought to be demonstrated in that context as well. And the great thing is that Jesus sets the example for us. For sake of time, we won't visit these passages, but you could note that John chapter 2, verses 1 and 12 is the wedding at Cana. A celebration, a time of feasting, merriment. And who was there? Jesus. Why? Because he was invited, but apparently he accepted the invitation. Imagine, just imagine, right? God in the flesh, whose mission is to save mankind from eternal darkness, gets a wedding invitation to come to your party, and he arrives. You see how he, let's just revisit from it, he had time to do that, right? To go to a wedding. And not only that, but while he was there, they ran out of wine, which is a huge faux pas in this culture. And I love the exchange between, his, between he and his mother. You know, his mother's like, listen, can you do something about this? And uh, he's like, now listen, it's not really time for me to start this kind of thing. And she's like, yeah, do whatever he tells you to do. It's like, son, you're going to do something here. And he does. And he turns water into wine, and not just any wine, but the best wine. So good that the host of the party was quite upset with the fact that the best wine was brought out last, which was another major faux pas. And it's the first miracle recorded in Scripture. And we have that record because Jesus himself understood what it was to rejoice with those who were rejoicing. It was a good thing to celebrate the union of these two people, and he was there to do it. Because of his presence, he was able to bless them additionally by helping them with their wine shortage. But on the reverse side, John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44, Jesus receives news that Lazarus has died. And we get to that famous verse, you know, usually about middle school, they start claiming it as their favorite verse. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But as funny as it might be that that's the shortest verse in the Bible, it's an illustration that Jesus also understood the value of joining people in their hurt. And you know, the amazing thing is, he knew what he was going to do. But he wept with them first. He sets for us the example. One of my favorite commentaries to use in my study time is the Liberty Bible Commentary from 1982. And they concluded we need to be so intimately involved with the lives of other believers that we know of their joys and their sorrows and can identify with each. The question here is, do you know the people that God has placed in your life well enough? that if they were to be hurting, you would know. And if they were in a time of celebration, would you know? Do you know them well enough? Not just your brothers and sisters in Christ, but everybody that God has brought into your social circles. You know, when we come here on Sunday, what can often be the case is we can put our best face on, which means that oftentimes the people we meet in this room are not really those people. And so how well are we getting to know one another? Another pitch perhaps to gather more with those people around your table. 
and get to know them. And that tends to be where the, the hurts and the joys come out as you break bread together. As we continue, he quotes from Proverbs 3 in this text and says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So he, he, he kind of turns here. He, he's still talking about the concept of meeting others where they are. The highs and the lows initially were more of like an emotional high or low. And now he kind of shifts to talking about a different way to do this. If you look at verse 16 again, he says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. What he means by this is, are you willing to join people, in this case, in their lows? Perhaps their low is a status. You know, they're not, they're not people of great means. They may not look the best, talk the best. And so society has determined that they're lowly people. Are you willing to associate with them? To be the people willing to befriend them? Because a follower of Christ should never be a person who's too good for that. He could also be talking about the lowliness of a task. As an example, the pastor that I had the privilege of serving with in southern Ohio before coming here, I think was a great example of, of many of these characteristics. This one in particular, because it would not be surprising to anyone who knew him if they were walking through the church building, you know, in the middle of the week, maybe to, to visit the office and, and do some business there, and to find him plunging a toilet. Is that because we didn't have a custodian? No. He was just willing to do it. It was not beneath him. He was not too good for that task. And he could very well be speaking of this too, to, to be willing to be associated with lowly tasks, willing to do them yourself, willing to get your hands dirty, so to speak, with others who find that as their occupation. And it's going to take a great deal of humility to do that, both humility before the Lord. If we acknowledge God as we set out our path, we'll be rightly positioned with him, knowing that we didn't deserve everything that he did for us, and be positioned then to be humble in relation to others. Are these the kinds of characteristics that we're demonstrating in our life? James chapter 2 is another good text to go to, and I would encourage you to, to look at that in your own time. But here James speaks to another Christian audience, and he calls them out because what he's heard of or even personally observed is that there were times where they were gathered as an assembly and someone who was wealthy, perhaps good-looking and dressed well, they were given favorable seating in the assembly, welcomed and loved on. But when someone came in who wasn't dressed so good, didn't smell so good, didn't, didn't talk so good perhaps, they were like, well, I guess you could be here, but you know, you could sit over here on the floor. Favoritism. 
And James very sternly says this, it never should be something that takes place in the body of Christ. And hopefully it's not one that would ever take place here. That anyone who would walk through those doors would be welcome. In fact, sought out so that they might have someone to sit with. Humility in relation to others. Let's take a look at verses 17 to 20. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul once again quotes from the Old Testament, in this case, Deuteronomy chapter 32. God is speaking, and in verse 35, he says, or you know, speaking audibly, so to speak, he says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. God saying, vengeance is mine. It's his territory. And Peter echoes many of these things. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. The, what, what are called the latter epistles are, is probably my favorite section of the New Testament. There's a sense of urgency. There's a lot of direct application. There's a lot of very timely issues that are still very relevant today. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, the apostle says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Catch this, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you get punished for something you did and it was wrong, what good is there in that? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, again, sets the example of what this looks like to, to leave vengeance to God and seek peace. Of all the people on planet Earth at the time, Jesus would have been well within his rights to retaliate, to punish the people that were perpetrating evil against him. Yet, as the prophet Isaiah said in his great uh, prophetic you know, uh, text about the Messiah, that he would not even open his mouth against them. Instead, when he did open his mouth, nearing the time of his death, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus gives us an example of what this looks like, brothers and sisters. It is not for a Christian to take vengeance into their own hands, because when we do, we step into God's territory, and he takes that quite personally. This is his territory. And so Paul very, very clearly says, leave place in your life for God to act here. Someone persecutes you, oppresses you, mistreats you. There's a place for God to act there. Leave it to him to handle. And he will. If you're still in 1 Peter, go to chapter 3. And right after an address to husbands and wives, Peter says this in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We'll stop there. The reason I, I take you there is not only does it echo the theme, but he's also quoting from the book of Psalms in chapter 34. This has been an expectation of God's people all along. Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, 1 Peter. God expects his people to resist the inclination to hit back and leave it to him. It's his territory. Going back to our text in Romans chapter 12, we'll notice that Paul once again quotes from the book of Proverbs, in this case, chapter 25, that says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You've probably just encountered the second mistake in my outline, because this needs to be bumped up to the previous point. You know, no one, I'll put it this way, that phrase, heaping burning coals on his head, if somebody, if you're ever in a room with somebody and they say they know with 100% certainty what that means, be very suspicious. I'm, I'm, you know, it doesn't seem clear that anybody knows for sure what this means. It's possible 
that some of the writers of Scripture could be pulling from what, what was a known Egyptian custom of having someone who had done wrong display their shame by carrying burning coals over their head. It's possible. But wherever this comes from, the general idea seems to be this. When you are being mistreated and your response is blessing, God may very well choose to use your response to bring that person to a recognition of the truth and a place of repentance in their life. Your response of blessing could be the clearest gospel message they've ever seen or heard. In that moment, you could look more like Christ than you ever have to them. And so this is what we're called to do, to resist the urge. And here's the amazing thing. That, that, and the command doesn't stop there, right? It doesn't simply say ignore it. It doesn't simply say don't respond to it. It says to respond, but with blessing. Seek peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be characterized as people who are seeking peace, not sowing conflict. As much as it depends upon us living peaceably with others. A Christ follower shouldn't be looking for a fight. On this thought, commentator Douglas Moo said, Paul does not want Christians to use the inevitability of tension with the world as an excuse for behavior that needlessly exacerbates that conflict or for a resignation that leads us not even to bother to seek to maintain a positive witness. And can I tell you, I've observed both of these attitudes among, amongst those who profess to be Christians. Well, conflict of the world's inevitable, so we're just going to go fight. Gloves off. But that's not our command. I've seen the, attitude, the other attitude in that statement. To be, to be so resigned from the situation that they don't even bother to be mindful of the testimony they have amongst other people. And that's a shame. And you're probably feeling the tension, but that's the thing, everybody. The path that Jesus sets out for us is one filled with this kind of tension. We can't simply escape it and ignore it, nor can we get involved and respond in a way that tarnishes Christ's reputation among, among a watching world. We're called to be involved and speak the truth, but do so lovingly and graciously. This is the path. And failure to do this could be devastating. Paul concludes in verse 21, as far as chapter 12 is concerned, by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, as opposed to dropping a statement and then explaining it, he seems to have given us some of the explanation and then dropped the big statement. How do we overcome evil with good? You've just read it. You overcome evil with good by blessing others, by showing kindness to those who mistreat you, by 
leaving vengeance to God and seeking peace. You overcome evil with good in these ways. And if we fail to do this, we basically allow evil to overcome us. Only by obeying Scripture can we overcome evil with good. So as we, for the last time, ask what are the characteristics of a transformed family, I believe that our study leads us to an answer like this. A transformed family blesses liberally by showing kindness to those who mistreat them, joining others in their highs and lows, leaving vengeance to God and seeking peace and overcoming evil with good. As I mentioned earlier, the concept of one another one anothering is all over this text and many others in the New Testament. One of the Greek words for the idea of one another is koinonia. And on that note, I wanted to conclude not just this study today, but our, our month study in general with a song. A little bit of an uncharacteristic way to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And the song is from an album titled Romans by a group that I've come to deeply appreciate, and their name is Salos. And they seem to be people who have a very firm grasp on the Word of God. And what they are making an effort to do is adapt Scripture musically in a way that's creative and thematic, memorable, but still very faithful to the text. And I'd like to play a song to you that is their way of reviewing not just Romans chapter 12, but also chapters 13, 14, and 15. Don't forget what I said. Romans 12 is just the beginning. And what I'd like you to do is this. During the first few minutes of this song, they'll be singing to you, and I want you to be looking out for all the concepts that came up over these four weeks together. See how many of them you can catch. This is also a way of just reviewing what we've learned together. And then there'll be a point in the song where you'll see the word koinonia up on the screen. And in parenthesis, it'll say something like an interlude for one anothering. And during that time, I'm going to challenge you to do something that may discomfort many of you. But considering that it seems as though we'll be hastened out of the auditorium at the conclusion of our time together, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do some one anothering before we close. And when you see that word up on the screen... There'll just be some instrumental music. I'd like you to reach out to somebody nearby, and I want you to share with them one thing over the past few weeks that has stood out to you, something that you're, you're trying to work on, something that you're thinking through, and, and, and how they can be praying for your application of that principle. Just do some one anothering in those couple of minutes, and then I'll come back up and close out our time together. So let's listen to a, a musical way to review what we've learned this month.
All right. Well, thank you for indulging that. I pray that it continues beyond our time together in this room. But just to review one final time, a transformed family lives sacrificially by recognizing their bodies are not their own, resisting being conformed to the world, and revealing the goodness of God's will. A transformed family serves exceptionally by acting with humility toward others, acknowledging and appreciating the diversity of the body, and applying their gifts generously. A transformed family loves genuinely by loathing evil and loving good, honoring others, exhibiting the faith with excitement, persevering with patience through prayer, and seeing the needs of others and satisfying them. And finally, a transformed family blesses liberally by showing kindness to those who mistreat them, joining others in their highs and lows, leaving vengeance to God and seeking peace and overcoming evil with good. As I have the past three weeks, I'd like to close with just a scriptural encouragement for you as we conclude our time together. This goes back to 1 Peter, in this case, chapter 5, and he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.